Welcome to the Faithful Forebears, a podcast about faithful Christian men and women throughout history. Season 2, Episode 1, Frumentius and Izana. Welcome back. It's good to be back with a full episode, and I want to thank all of you who kept encouraging me to get back into it and get more of these coming out. You did really help me get back to it. I greatly appreciate any feedback I get too, so please, if you are listening to this and you have any comments or questions, I always would love to hear them. As I said in the introduction last time, going forward I will organize my episode into seasons. Each season will focus on a region, conflict, issue, or vocation. And as I mentioned before, I have a few ideas for future seasons, including things like the Reformation, faith and science, vocations like missionary, and lots of others. But this next season, I'm very excited to focus on the region Ethiopia. I did have a vision a while ago that I would focus on many different regions, and I did that starting with Ireland. Now, we've seen forebears from places like Syria, Turkey, Greece, and a lot in the Middle Ages that we looked at have come from France, England, Ireland, Germany, or Italy. But this episode, I'm really excited that we're going to be going far away from Europe, and even out of the Mediterranean basin, to the country of Ethiopia. I'm very excited to be doing Ethiopia, because I think it's important to remind us the truly international scale of Christianity. Christianity is not a European-centric faith, and anyone who thinks that is gravely mistaken. Christianity has ancient roots in places like Asia and Africa. And in fact, Christianity was adopted as a national religion in Armenia in Asia and Ethiopia in Africa long before it was adopted in the Roman Empire. So today we will learn the story of how the church in Ethiopia began, and over the next several episodes we will follow it through to modern times. So, we'll start with a little introduction to Ethiopia in general. What we call modern-day Ethiopia was not always called that. For a very long time, it was known as Abyssinia. Just so you know, every once in a while, I might call it Abyssinia, but for simplicity's sake, I'll mostly be referring to the region as Ethiopia all the way through. I should also mention that ancient Ethiopia's border was different from today's Ethiopia. And sometimes Ethiopia included parts of what is now Sudan, as well as Eritrea. Also, modern-day Eritrea and Ethiopia both trace their heritage back to ancient Ethiopia. But again, for simplicity's sake, most of the time, I'm just going to say Ethiopia to refer to the whole region. It's also good to know a little bit about modern Ethiopia. Modern Ethiopia is currently the second largest country by population in Africa. And it's the world's largest landlocked country, with a current population of about 101 million people. It also happens to be the only African country never to be colonized by a European power. And that's a fact they are very proud of. And while it has many different tribes and people groups, its population is primarily Christian. And it has been that way since at least the 500s AD. While most of the population belongs to the Ethiopian Orthodox, Tawahido Church, there are also large Protestant church bodies. For instance, the Makana Yesus, Lutheran Church of Ethiopia, is a thriving church body, and it has about as many members as all the Lutheran church bodies in America combined. In our next few episodes, we will see exactly how the church, 
both Orthodox and Protestant, grew. The history of Ethiopia and the history of Christianity in Ethiopia are both fascinating. Sadly, they are almost entirely unknown or forgotten by modern Western Christians. Its history, as I said before, is just as old as that of Europe's, and in fact, some could argue the church in Ethiopia is older. As we will see, the church in Ethiopia was established before churches in places like England or Germany or Scandinavia, so it has deep roots. But the depth of those roots depends on who you ask. So we're going to be looking at a couple different versions. There will be what I call the legendary roots of the Ethiopian church, and the roots which we know have firm historical footing. So let's start with the legendary. According to Ethiopian tradition, the connection of Ethiopia to Christianity goes back 900 years before the birth of Jesus to ancient Judaism. In the book of 1 Kings in the Old Testament, we see a mysterious but fascinating character called the Queen of Sheba. And one quick note, when I use the word legendary to describe this, I'm not saying that this story in the Bible is merely a legend, but what I am saying is how this story has been used in some Ethiopian traditions and its kings, those cannot be historically verified. You'll see what I mean in a bit. But here is a little of what First Kings, from the English Standard Version, says about the Queen of Sheba. Now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard from my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and had my own eyes to see it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants, who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you, and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Now there's much debate as to where this queen actually comes from, and where Sheba was. Most modern scholars believe that she was either from Yemen or Nubia which is around modern-day Sudan, and possibly Ethiopia. But most scholars do not believe what is now modern Ethiopia is a likely location for Sheba. But the Church of Ethiopia has connected itself to this story since at least the 1200s AD. And in fact, the kings of Ethiopia claim their lineage goes all the way back to King Solomon. According to this tradition, Solomon and the queen had a child together. The Ethiopian church points to the verse 1 Kings 10.13, which says, And King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. The church in Ethiopia reasons, What more would a single queen desire than an heir coming from such a wise king? Tradition states that this child of that union went and reigned in Ethiopia and continued the Davidic line there. And when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 BC, the Ark of the Covenant was smuggled out of Judea to Ethiopia to keep it safe. And in fact, there is a building connected to an Ethiopian church 
called Our Lady Mary of Zion, where the Ark is claimed to still be today. For safety, there are two other churches which could possibly be holding the Ark as well. However, only the appointed guardians are able to go in and out of those buildings, and I don't blame them for keeping it hidden. We've all seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. I know I don't want to be looking at it. As I said, this story has been incredibly formational to the Ethiopian church, but it does not have solid historical evidence to back it up, as some of the other stories we will discuss do have. We will talk about the formation of that Solomonic legend a little bit more in the next episode. But now let's look at the next of the legendary roots of the Ethiopian church. And this story also comes from the Bible. Again, I'm not saying it's a legend as in these events didn't happen, but how the details of these stories are understood is what's legendary. So, this story is the story of Philip and the eunuch, found in Acts chapter 8. And it goes like this, again from the ESV. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and was returning, seated in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him, and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So here we see the story of a specifically Ethiopian man. So the Ethiopian church has claimed connection to this eunuch. But while this story in this man probably did have an effect on the region, the start of the Ethiopian church as an organization not appear to come from this eunuch. This is probably because what Luke means by Ethiopia in Acts is not quite the same region as we mean when we say Ethiopia, and it's probably more likely closer to modern-day Sudan. And as we know, the queens there at that time went by the title Candace. So there we have looked at the two legendary origins of the Ethiopian church. Again, not legends because those events didn't happen, but because we don't know how those events directly affected the Church of Ethiopia. But now I want us to switch gears, and let's look at the ancient history of Ethiopia from more secular sources. So the Greeks knew about the region of modern Ethiopia, and they traded and sometimes even traveled down the Red Sea and interacted with them. Though the connection was limited, there are stories and references to the people living there. They were called Ethiopes, which in Greek means charred faces. This is a term, however, that was applied to pretty much anyone who is living south of Egypt. The term Ethiopes is used by Homer and the Greek historian Herodotus. Homer speaks of the gods of Greece after receiving their sacrifices there, then traveling down to the land of the Ethiopes, where they were also worshipped. Herodotus also mentions the homeland of the Ethiopes, but again is probably speaking of what we know as Sedan. He actually speaks quite a lot about them, calling them the tallest and most handsome of all people. He was a little confused, however, about reports that the Nile was fed from snow from mountains there, because it was common knowledge that the further south you went, the hotter it got. The Roman historian and naturalist Pliny, the Elder, writing in 77 AD, also mentions the Ethiopes being ruled by a queen called Candace. 
A pliny, like Luke, again probably means the area which is now South Sudan. But there still was a lot of political activity in the area of our focus, the region of modern Ethiopia. The first major political power there began to grow around 50 BC, around the city of Askham. This city's prominence grew as a hub of materials and goods from the interior of Africa would move to its port city of Adulis on destinations to Europe and India. They traded ivory, hides of hippos, tortoise shells, apes, slaves, among many other goods. And the wealth and influence of this kingdom, which we call the Askamite Kingdom, grew rapidly. So the Askamite Kingdom was ancient Ethiopia. And the Askamite kings began conquering the areas around them. And soon they controlled area in every direction and even some territory across the Red Sea into the region of Arabia. There is a quote around 240 AD attributed to a man named Mani, the founder of the Persian Manichaean religion, and it states this, There are four great kingdoms in the world. The first is that of Babylon and Persia. The second is the Roman Empire. The third is the kingdom of the Ascomites. And the fourth is the kingdom of the Celios. So over the next several hundred years, this Ethiopian kingdom of Askham prospered. Trade increased, and it grew more connected with the Mediterranean world. There was even an ancient guidebook for Greek navigators that included a brief description of the kingdom and what to expect and what to look for. So now we've set the stage pretty well, and we've been introduced to ancient Ethiopia. So it's time to finally meet the first forebearer of this episode a man named Frumentius, the man who would establish the Christian faith in Ethiopia. So Frumentius was probably born around the year 305 AD, and it's almost certain that Christians had come to Ethiopia before this time, likely some Greek merchants or traders, and perhaps the first Christian to Ethiopia was someone from the court of Candace. Who knows, it maybe could have even been that very eunuch mentioned in the book of Acts but we have no record or evidence of any organized Christian group before our friend Frumentius. Now, Frumentius himself was not an Ethiopian. He was probably from the city of Tyre, just northwest of Galilee and Israel. When Frumentius was a boy, he was given a chance to go on a great adventure. One of his relatives, a man named Meropius, was a philosopher. Meropius had a dream of following the footsteps of one of his own heroes, another philosopher, named Metrodorus. It was said that Metrodorus took a trip into further India to learn more about the world. So Meropius found a merchant ship going that way and hired passage on it. For this great trip, he invited his two younger relatives, probably nephews, on the journey. Those were Frumentius and his brother Odysseus. We don't know anything about the journey, except that Meropius felt he accomplished everything he wanted to. He'd apparently seen the far-off and exotic place and experienced the new things he'd hoped for. I'm sure they all saw some pretty incredible sights as they traveled through the ancient world. On the way back, when their ship was in port in the Red Sea, disaster struck. The three travelers, along with the ship and its crew, were part of the Roman Empire, and so were all Romans. It was a custom in that area of the Red Sea that if a treaty with the Romans had been broken, all the Romans found in the area would be killed. 
Sadly, on their return trip, just such a treaty was broken by one of the political powers in the region. As the ship was in port getting water and other supplies, it was boarded, and all who were on it were killed. Thankfully, Frumentius and his brother, Odysseus, were not on the ship. Those who killed the rest found them later, studying on the shore. The boys were totally oblivious to the massacre, studying their books, like good students, underneath a tree. Since they were only boys, the soldiers had pity on them. So instead of killing them, they took them back to the capital city of Ascom, and brought these two captives to the king of Ascom, a man named Uzanas. When the king found them, he liked them. He saw they were intelligent and energetic, especially Frumentius. The king decided that he would make Odysseus his cupbearer, but Frumentius he would give the duty as secretary and treasurer of the kingdom. This was probably due to Frumentius being fluent and gifted in writing Greek. This would be a big asset to the king, as Greek was a necessary language for much of the trade going through his kingdom, and for political treaties with foreign nations. Apparently both the brothers did their new jobs very well, and they earned the trust and respect of the king and the whole royal family. For many years they worked as the king's faithful servants, and they earned so much respect that one of the final acts of the king before his death was to grant them both their freedom. On the death of the king, his wife became regent, as their son was not yet of age to rule. The queen had learned to trust these two brothers very well, and similar to Queen Blanche and Louis IX from episode 12, the queen knew she needed people she could trust to help establish her son's domain. So even though Frumentius and Odysseus were now free, the queen begged them to stay until her son was old enough to rule on his own. Out of compassion, both brothers agreed. So the queen made Frumentius the manager of the whole realm. In possibly less than ten years, Frumentius went from prisoner in a strange land to being the freed second-in-command of the whole kingdom. It's a story that's very reminiscent to Joseph from the book of Genesis. But besides being a capable administrator and leader, Frumentius had a burning desire to use his influence to share his Christian faith with this kingdom. Frumentius and his brother apparently had been well-trained in the Christian faith and had clung to that faith throughout their exile. While in this new position, the main account of Frumentius' life states this about him. God stirred up his heart and his mind. Frumentius wanted the gospel preached and the seeds of a new church planted. He first did this by talking with as many Greek and Roman merchants traveling through the kingdom as he could. If any were Christian, he would encourage them to start small meetings and gatherings of worship, and he'd help them do this in whatever ways he could. He found places for them to hold these meetings and would give them everything they needed to start small communities there. The account of his life also states he was acting passionately in every respect so that the seed of Christianity might grow there. After years of doing this, the young king finally came of age. Frumentius dutifully handed everything over to him. The new king and his mother still begged them to stay but Frumentius and Odysseus told them they must return to their home. So around the year 335, they left and headed north to their homeland. But reaching the borders of the Roman Empire, the two brothers decided to take different paths. Odysseus wanted to return home to his parents and family, and went back to their hometown of Tyre. But Frumentius felt a different calling. 
So instead, he went to Egypt, to the great city of Alexandria. There he found the bishop of Alexandria and told him the story of his capture and the new churches being started in Ethiopia. That bishop was not just any bishop, but a man named Athanasius. Now, if you know your church history, you may know a bit about Athanasius, who was a major player, especially in the Council of Nicaea. He was known as the stalwart defender of the Trinity and Jesus' divinity. For instance, you may have heard of a creed named after him. Athanasius was very attentive and interested in everything Frumentius told him. After discussing it for a while, Frumentius told Athanasius he believed Ethiopia was ready for a bishop to come and tend to the little church growing there. Athanasius told him, What other man will we find of such a kind, in whom the Spirit of God is as yourself? Who can thus accomplish this? Athanasius had Frumentius consecrated as a bishop right there, and sent him off with the church's blessing to be the first bishop of Ethiopia. As a side note, this relationship established between Athanasius and Frumentia, between the churches of Alexandria and the church in Ethiopia, remained for about 1,500 years until 1959. Through that whole time, the new bishop of Ethiopia, called the Abuna, was always confirmed by the patriarch of Alexandria. This tradition was difficult once Egypt was conquered by Muslims, but it continued nonetheless. So Frumentius, now as a bishop, returned to the land of his capture. He was apparently quickly very successful, and worked closely with the young king that he'd helped guide and teach. This close relationship between rulers and bishops of the nation would also last many centuries. And Frumentius is known in Ethiopia sometimes simply as Abuna, our father, or as Abba Salama. But the main account of Frumentius' story ends here. The account comes from his brother, Odysseus, who himself became a priest in Tyre, never returning to Ethiopia. And even though he was able to receive some news from his brother, he never heard much more from him. But we can piece together some of the rest of Frumentius' life from other accounts, some of those pieces being from the young prince that Frumentius helped. That prince, later king, has his own very interesting story, as he is the first Christian king of Ethiopia. His name is King Izana, and he is the second faithful forebear of this episode. So let's go back into our story a bit, when Frumentius and his brother were first captured. The king who welcomed Frumentius into his court was the father of Izana, named Usanas. King Usanas is also known as Ella Elada. We don't know if he ever became a Christian himself, but he did love and honor the two captured brothers. As we mentioned earlier, when King Usanas died, his queen knew she needed people she could trust and depend on to help her son reach maturity to be the ruler. Izana's mother implicitly trusted Frumentius and Odysseus, and as we saw, it was a good choice. They proved to be faithful servants, and Izana was well-positioned when he came of age, thanks to their work and faithfulness. While there are not many records of Izana, we do know several things about him. We know he was a strong king. We also know he was a warrior and led many successful military campaigns. We don't know when Izana converted to Christianity, but we do know he did, and there is evidence of his change. Most of this evidence is found in inscriptions, on stone, and through coins. 
For instance, in Izana's first military campaign, there's an inscription describing Izana himself as the son of Marum, which is basically the god of war, similar to the Greek god Ares or the Roman god Mars. Then there's another dedicating his victory to the gods of the sky, similar to Zeus, and to the gods of the sea, similar to Poseidon. These inscriptions were usually written in two languages, the language of the Ethiopians, Ge'ez, and the language of trade, Greek. This was so that both natives and foreigners could read them. But these inscriptions, ascribing Izana's victories to Greek gods, changed. A little later in life, we see Izana has clearly had a great conversion. The later inscriptions say this, May the might of the Lord of Heaven, who has made me king, who reigns over all eternity, invincible, cause that no enemy can resist me, and no enemy may follow me. By the might of the Lord of all, I campaigned against Noba when the Noba peoples revolted. That inscription finishes with these lines. I set up a throne in shadow, here by the might of the Lord of heaven, who has helped me and given me kingship. May the Lord of heaven reinforce my kingship, as he has now defeated my enemies for me, may he continue to do so wherever I go. As he has now conquered for me and has submitted my enemies to me, I wish to reign in justice and equity without doing any injustice to my people. That is the story told by the inscription in the Ethiopian native language of Ge'ez. What's fascinating is the difference between that version and the version written in Greek, the version for outsiders. In the Ge'ez version... The God of Christianity is simply described as the Lord of Heaven and the Lord of All. But the Greek version describing the same events says it this way, With faith in God and by the power of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who saved the kingdom for me, and with faith in his Son, Jesus Christ, who has helped me and will always be with me, I, Izanas, King of the Askamites and the Himrites, Servant of Christ, thank the Lord my God. So did you notice the difference? In the message to his own people, Izana only describes the God of his faith as the Lord of heaven. But when speaking to the outside world, we see a very explicit Trinitarian Christian view. Now why is that? One theory is that Izana is trying to lead his people slowly into the new Christian faith. King Izana likely had a very nuanced and deep understanding of Christian theology. After all, his good friend and close advisor Frumentius was now a bishop, and a very intelligent one. But just because he believed and understood, that did not mean his common people would. If Izana wanted to lead his nation from paganism to Christianity, it would be a difficult task. Izana likely thought his people wouldn't be ready for a full change right away. Instead, he wanted to bring his people from polytheism to monotheism first. The first thing he wanted his subjects to understand was that there was one God, and this one God was truly the ruler of sky, sea, and earth, greater than any supposed Greek God. All the other gods' dominions and attributes were really those of the one true God. And some have compared this strategy with that of the Apostle Paul in Acts 17. Paul, too, begins by showing the Greeks that there is truly only one God and he is Lord over all. Paul even quotes their own poets, in him we live and move and have our beings. Izana, probably with the guidance of Frumentius, is trying to do a similar thing with his pagan nation. 
During this time, the coins of Ethiopia also changed. Many of the old religious symbols, such as crescent moons, were replaced with crosses. On one coin there is a cross with the words, May this be pleasing to the country, almost as a request or a suggestion. Izana's approach would be slow and gentle in bringing this new faith, but also thorough. Now we don't know much more about the work of Frumentius and Izana, except that they were successful. By the time of their deaths, there was surely a lot of work still to be done, and the conversion had not yet grown deep roots, but it was well along the way. It's probable that most of the Christians in the country at that time were still the elite, people like city dwellers, merchants, and government officials. But through the next several centuries, missionary work would continue into the country and small towns and villages. We'll talk about that more next episode. Next episode, we will explore more into this young Christian nation. Like the faith in every region, Christianity came through the work of many countless people. But what's certain is that the church in Ethiopia does have deep roots, whether one goes by legends or strictly by documented history. And whatever you go by, certainly the work of Frumentius and Izana was very vital to it. It's interesting to compare the work of Frumentius with another missionary we've learned about in this podcast, Patrick. In fact, the two men lived less than a hundred years apart from each other, though many thousands of miles apart. Both, in a way, were accidental missionaries. Both were captured at a young age and lived their youth in captivity. Both would leave the land of their capture only to feel the need to return and preach the faith to a land that desperately needed it. And both would start a conversion in their respective places that would last over a thousand years. So it's a shame we don't remember Frumentius like we do Patrick. I suppose that's because most of us in the U.S. and Western Europe don't have much connection to Ethiopia or Ethiopians, but we do have a lot with Irish and those with Irish ancestry. Also, there are no festivals in any major American cities that dye their rivers green for Frumentius. But that's a shame. Both men's work would change the course of their nations and ultimately the world. And the Christian faith in both of these regions is still alive today, and both can trace their lineage back to the work of these men. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It's good to be back doing one of these. Next time we will jump forward in Ethiopia's history many centuries. The Ethiopian church and the nation of Ethiopia would have many struggles, but it would endure. Next time we'll learn again about two other leaders a king and a priest. One would re-establish and strengthen Ethiopia's nation and church. The other would work hard to reform it back to a biblical faith. So that wraps up this episode. As always, I appreciate your comments and questions. Please don't hesitate to shoot me an email with any of your thoughts on any of the episodes. You can email me at eric at faithfulforebears.com. I have been able to find some great resources thanks to listener recommendations. And you might even be able to help me pick a subject for a future episode. As always, please rate or review the podcast. It's always helpful. And tell a friend. I'm Eric Clausen, and thanks for listening.